many bottles of this wine we can't pronounce Too many bowls of that green, no lucky charms The maids come around too much Parents ain't around enough Too many joy rides in daddy's Jaguar Too many white lies and white lines Super rich kids with nothing but loose ends Super rich kids with nothing but fake friends Start my day up on the roof There's nothing like this type of view <laughs> I should say, I'm the person who picked out this song It may be a very unfair song to play about Greenwich Particularly at this moment, but I can live with that Life is not always unfairness is priced into life, as we learn again and again every election cycle. So uh, just very quickly, yeah, one of the rules we have here on this show, particularly if we're doing something like a post-election day show, is we got to make it different somehow. Uh, and so a little bit later in the show, you will hear us have a conversation about just uncertainty uh, with a student of that. Uh, and because, in fact, we're dealing with a lot of uncertainty today. We don't really know how things came out. And even if we did know how things came out, we'd be dealing with a lot of uncertainty. So and there's an argument to be made for embracing that. Towards the end, I'm kind of looking for a theory of everything. And we're going to talk to a uh, political science theorist about thermostasis, the kind of idea that there's an equilibrium, you know, that is that kind of finds itself uh, in, in some of these situations. So the minute something's supposed to happen, th there's a, kind of an argument that it won't. Uh, I don't know. I'm not explaining this very well, but we'll get to it. But right now, I've been fascinated all along by the situation in Greenwich. Greenwich, of course, was the stronghold of literally the Bush family and therefore the kind of Bush Republicans. Uh, and something happened. And it, it's been happening for a while, but it happened big time this year. Here to talk about it is somebody who wrote a terrific piece a page-turner of a piece, which I would still uh, recommend that you read, even though, obviously, things on the ground have changed and played out. But Dan Barry, longtime reporter and columnist for The New York Times, his most recent book is This Land, America Lost and Found. Uh, he's a terrific writer and somebody I've known a long time. I'm a big fan. Uh, and so Dan's agreed to come and talk a little bit about Greenwich to us. Dan, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Can you hear me all right? Oh, Absolutely. So, right. so maybe just uh, kind of nutshell your piece for us. Uh, what what was the basic? You were writing about a schism, really, within the Republican Party in Greenwich. Uh, that's right. As you as you probably know, Greenwich was famously known as kind of a bastion of moderate uh, Republicanism in the mold of uh, George H. W. Bush, and it had been that way for a very long time. The things have been changing on the ground. And in uh, 2021, a moderate Republican town committee chairman led the Republicans to pretty much of a sweep of the local elections. But that wasn't enough for a small contingent within the Republican Party who um, John Brunig at the Greenwich Time has referred to as Trumplicans. OK, so it's like a three party town, uh, Democrat, Republican and Trumplican. And so they were not happy with this moderate town chairman who a couple of days after the election um, in uh, 2020 uh, criticized uh, Donald Trump and said, we have to we have to move beyond this guy. Um, it's time to reimagine ourselves as Republicans. And that didn't sit well with a certain cohort. And so there was a lot of planning. And then in the January 2022 caucuses in that town, 
um, he was ousted and a new slate of uh, Republicans came in and they would be, I would say, more uh, right uh, of the of the Trump mold. And so they took over the Republican town committee. That doesn't necessarily mean that they were representative of Greenwich Republicans uh, writ large, but they had these very powerful seats uh, uh, in, in a sense, because as Stephen Bannon has pointed out over and over again, it starts at this level. You, you, you elect your, your school board chairman, your, your town council president, and those are the stepping stone positions that get you to Congress or even into the White House. Right. And I'll just say, as somebody who covers this stuff, this is happening also against the backdrop of an overall overall blueing of of Fairfield County in general. Fairfield County, which, you know, for a long time was also the kind of bastion of a kind of moderate republicanism embodied by, say, Stu McKinney or Chris Shays. Uh, But it's getting bluer and bluer. Jim Himes has been the congressman down in that area for a long time. And in 2018, there because there was that wave, that kind of anti-Trump wave that elected AOC and a bunch of other people, I mean, there, there that, that was felt in Greenwich. There was a Senate seat there that hadn't turned blue since... King George III had it painted, you know, but it did. It turned blue in that particular wave. So there are some risks probably playing around with the with the reputation of the existing Republican Party anyway. But as you say, this this Trumpy faction uh, ascends. Um, one of the big figures is a guy named Carl Higby, who I'll let you describe a little bit. I've had some dealings uh, with this person, and he's he's he is a very 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 Trumpy figure who's worked for Trump uh, and is kind of this you know ninety percent id uh, psychological profile. That's right. He's a, a former Navy SEAL. And uh, he was a big Trump supporter and wound up in the Trump administration in the early months of of the Trump um, tenure. Uh, but he got jammed up fairly quickly when CNN unearthed some uh, comments he had made over the years on kind of shock jock radio. And they're, uh, you know, uh, to, a, to even to the objective ear, they're quite offensive um, uh, suggesting that soldiers with PTSD are just faking it, basically, and also saying that black people are lazier than white people, period. And his co-host on that program was saying, Carl, you got to pull it back. You got to pull it back a little bit. And he doubled down and he repeated it. And so CNN unearthed this stuff. Uh, he had to resign his position with the Trump administration, but he wound up with Newsmax and he is a player in, in Greenwich Republican politics. He's not on the town committee, interestingly enough, though he has a, a central role in its social media uh, presence in the town. So he's a divisive figure, no question. Right. And your piece has these kind of funny moments, too, as they're they're trying to mobilize this new faction of more Trumpy Republicans. And some of the people have not really been politically connected uh, that much in their lives. And there's one woman who said that her initial reaction was, uh, a political campaign, but it's golf season, uh, which, is so, which is so Greenwich. Uh, but in fact, they do mobilize. And so one of the people who is sort of coughed up by this process uh, is a candidate named Kimberly Fiorello. Uh, so tell us about Kimberly Fiorello. Um, she is, you know, I suppose it came out of nowhere. Um, she's um uh, she was elected to the state house a couple of years ago, and she immediately aligned herself with the conservative caucus. 
And she um, went even writer than right in many ways. Um, over the over the last couple of years, she's moderated panels with um, with doctors who have been derided by their colleagues as um, anti-vax and kind of you know a little off the grid, and um, and also with a group called No Left Turn in Education which believes that uh, public school systems throughout America are indoctrinating our young with uh, leftist political ideologies. So that's pretty much who she is. And she's also, you know, let's say uh, Trump adjacent. After the um, search warrant was executed in Mar-a-Lago a few months ago, um, she quickly referred to it as a raid and said that we should fear for our republic because un-American things are being done. So... Now, I think we should just talk a little bit about what did happen yesterday. So Fiorello uh, lost her race to a Democratic challenger, Rachel Khanna. Um, more than that, and I, I will tell you, Dan, that at a certain point during the night, one of my Republican sources texted me to say, it's a bloodbath down, <laughs> down there. So a guy named uh, Hector Arzeno uh, defeated a Republican challenger, Peter Schur, in the 151st House seat, which had never had a Democrat in it. Uh, and right. and so, I mean, these are signs. And, and then sort of the, the outlier or the one we even don't know, I think it's still unclear whether Ryan Fazio, who's a much closer to center Republican senator uh, in, in Greenwich, as far as I know, his race hasn't been decided yet. He seemed to be, you know, just marginally, marginally ahead. But, uh, you know, all day long, people have been talking about how the red wave didn't happen. It really didn't happen in Greenwich. I think in Greenwich, though, uh, in you know, uh, first of all, I, I think there was a failure uh, by this new Republican town committee, you know, very, very um, uh, ad adherent to the, the Trump ideology and style that they were misreading Greenwich um, by a great deal. Greenwich has become more and more diverse, uh, as you pointed out earlier. Um, Republicans just five years ago had a wide uh, uh, margin over Democrats in terms of their registered voters. And in 2018, that changed. And there are more unaffiliated voters than there are uh, registered to either party. And I think the, the this Greenwich Town Committee um, stuck to ideology rather than to any kind of practical politics. And they just kind of doubled down on uh, the Trump approach to things and they paid a price. Yeah. And I would go so far as to say, too, this is just me chiming in, that one of the hazards of recruiting a lot of people to a cause, to a political cause who don't have a lot of experience in politics is they, they tend not to know how things work. Uh, and, and there are sort of there are evolved practices, best practices in politics that have evolved that way because they do work. So, I mean, when I look at something like this, I think, well, it also looks like, you know, they just maybe didn't get what a what a ground game looks like or, or, or something like that. But I think your piece is very persuasive about the fact, too, that. Greenwich is sort of following a pattern that we can see around the country. You know, why is Brian Kemp running better than Herschel Walker? Uh, why did the governor of Virginia get elected a couple of cycles, uh, a cycle ago uh, or half a cycle ago? Because, in fact, the, the Trump imprimatur and the high Trump identification seems to be not as valuable as, for example, Donald Trump thinks it is. 
I agree. And, you know, if you looked at the caucus in Greenwich in, in January of 2022, it's not unlike primaries, right? So uh, the, the, the Trump faction wind up being way more motivated than moderate or everyday Republicans. And so what happens is they seize control. And I think this becomes a cautionary tale for, for moderates uh, across the board and not just in Greenwich. Right. And I think the other question becomes, and this is one that neither one of us knows the answer to, is how does Greenwich or any comparable political ecosystem respond to something like this? I mean, you know, for <laughs> I was talking to a, a Democratic leader last night who said that he had been talking to a well, I can I can say who he was talking to. He was talking to John McKinney, uh, who's the son of Stu McKinney, and John McKinney is, was a big figure in the Connecticut State Senate for a long time and a very similar kind of moderate Republican. And the Democrat goes, "John, your party's gone. It's over." <laughs> and I don't think that's necessarily true. I know that it looks true in certain ways, but when you look at everything that happened last night, and if we used Greenwich as a microcosm, which might be wise and might be unwise. You could say, well, maybe this is the time to have that conversation. You know, is is the old party gone or, in fact, do we need to rescue the old party from the new party? I, I agree with that. I also think in Greenwich, you know, Peter Scher had been on the school board for a dozen years. And uh, I think in Greenwich, you either liked him or you really didn't like him. And that also played a role. I think you're right, though. There has to be some kind of uh, recalibration within the Republican Party about how far they're going to go with this. And we're seeing that nationally and whether whether that's what uh, uh, DeSantis is actually doing is positioning himself as, you know, a better form of Trump. Is that where you want to go or do you want to go more moderate and uh, centrist and representative of a place like Greenwich? Right. And I think also, uh, you know, one of the names we haven't said yet is Leora Levy. So Leora Levy ran for U.S. Senate uh, last night and ran (laughs) the New York Times called the race for Richard Blumenthal, I believe, 30 seconds after the polls closed. But but Levy is an interesting example because she was that old style of Greenwich Republican. In fact, she was a Jeb Bush person uh, in the 2016 cycle. And she actually wrote a letter to the editor of some Greenwich publication just talking about what a kind of unpleasant, unpresidential thug uh, Donald Trump was. Then she winds up seeking the nomination this time around, courts the approval of Trump, goes to Mar-a-Lago and wins the nomination. If you believe what I've been told about internal polls, Trump's endorsement of Levy flipped that primary away from Themis Claritus, a more moderate Democrat, and, and into Levy's lap. But that's also an example of, I mean, in other words, the Republicans possibly could have run a more competitive race against Blumenthal last night. They probably wouldn't have won, but they could have come closer. And and, and the Trump endorsement made, you know, a less palatable candidate. Right. Well, there, there you are. There's the gap, right, between the, the primary and the reality of a general election, right? So she gets the Trump um, imprimatur and it pushes her um, – to victory in a primary, but now you're in the wide open ocean of a general election and that likability is not the same. Right. I mean, some of that's the problem with our primary systems. Our primary here in Connecticut is in August. Lior Lee collected 47,000 votes. I haven't looked at Blumenthal's number from last night, but six years ago it was a million votes. So you don't want to build you want to build your hopes on a forty seven thousand vote outcome. Um, but so yeah, I don't know. I mean, in a way, I guess the the question that I I want to end with is 
has to do with you as a writer and your curiosity. Is there part of you that maybe wants to go back to Greenwich in a year or so and see what's going on here? I mean, you did such a good job of kind of laying out the the hues and colors uh, of the schism. Uh, do you have some curiosity about where it's going? Well, first of all, I don't know whether Greenwich would allow me back in. You know, uh, for years I wasn't allowed in Greenwich past dusk. But, uh, yeah, no, I think it's a legitimate question. What's going to happen, for example, in the next round of caucuses, right? Like, what's going to happen within the town committee uh, when they look at Beth McGillivray, who's the new chair, who, you know, sort of is uh, the the face for Peter Schur and for Carl Higby and these other, you know, more extreme Republicans, is there going to be a reckoning even before the caucuses? Um, it is a legitimate question, yes. All right, Dan Barry, longtime reporter and columnist for the New York Times, no stranger to Connecticut either, I should tell you. Uh, his most recent book is This Land, America Lost and Found. Uh, I would recommend tracking down in affluent Greenwich. It's Republicans versus Trumplicans. Yes, a phrase he borrowed from the estimable John Brunig. Happens to be the, right. happens to be my editor at Hearst. Uh, so, so I got to make sure. Uh, but thanks so much for talking to me. All right. Hang in there. Thank you. All right. So we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to have a conversation about uncertainty. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Hartford HealthCare recently celebrated the opening of the Ridge Recovery Center in Wyndham. Christy Scott, Vice President of Clinical Operations, describes this new state-of-the-art destination for healing. Individuals will come if they're suffering from substance use disorder and get individualized treatment. They can stay up to three to four weeks and receive family therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, and lots of other holistic care like yoga, trail walking, acupuncture. So it's going to be a great place for people to come and heal. For those seeking recovery, finding it close to home can sometimes be challenging. Many individuals travel to Florida and other states that have more treatment centers. So we're hoping by doubling our capacity at Hartford HealthCare, the individuals can stay in their home state with their family and support systems close by. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Look, man, I've got certain information, all right? Certain things have come to light and, you know, has it ever occurred to you that instead of uh, you know, running around uh, uh, blaming me, you know, given the nature of all this new shit, you know, it, it, this could be a, a, a lot more uh, 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 complex. I mean, it's not just, it might not be just such a simple, uh, you know? Nobody explains uncertainty like the dude. But if anybody could explain uncertainty like the dude, uh, it might be our next guest, Bethany Teachman, a professor of psychology and director of clinical training at the University of Virginia. We were attracted to her by a piece that ran uh, two years ago in The Conversation, a publication we like a lot, called Three Research-Based Ways to Cope with the Uncertainties of Pandemic Life. So, uh, Bethany Teachman, first of all, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. And... 
I mean, obviously the piece was about the pandemic, but I, I think you and I would both agree that there's an awful lot that you say in that piece can, that can be spread out into uh, other parts uh, of our lives, including perhaps an election cycle. Absolutely. And many of us are, you know, resi- refreshing our news feeds pretty regularly right now as there's a lot of uncertainty tied to uh, what we're looking at over the next couple of years. Right. So maybe let's begin. Would it be fair t- to say that in, in many ways we uh, homo sapiens are kind of wired for certainty. I mean, there's probably a, a, an evolutionary adaptive quality. You eat those berries, you don't eat those berries. These berries make you sick. Those ber- berries are fine. You go over there, but you don't go over there. It's not safe over there. That, you know, in or- order to survive, you want to know things for certain. Uncertainty isn't necessarily as useful. And we seem to continue to crave it and to seek patterns that will deliver it. I don't know. Are, are we creatures who crave certainty? Absolutely. We're, we're creatures who, who desire narratives. So we want to make stories in our lives. We want to wrap things up, have beginning, middles and ends that make sense to us. And it's hard to sit with ambiguity. We have a term where we call intolerance of uncertainty because it many people feel anxious when they are faced with a lot of unknowns. And so it's natural that we have that desire to sort of wrap things up. But in fact, we have to tolerate quite a lot of uncertainty in our daily lives uh, because there's so much that is unknown. It's especially true right now, but it's true for most of us in general, right? If you think about exactly what your relationships will look like a year from now, there's no way you could possibly answer that question. It's just that right now it feels like there are so many big, important questions that have uncertainty tied to it, that it makes it hard for us to sit with that and feel like it's hard to plan, all of those kinds of things that that raise anxiety for us. Right. So right now we have kind of multi-layered uncertainty. We don't know how some of these elections are going to turn out. And once we do know how they're going to turn out, then they feed into a, a larger stream of uncertainties. Well, what you know, what happens if Kevin McCarthy is Speaker of the House? What's the, what happens then? What happens then? There are an awful lot of those questions and fewer answers. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about how to cope with that so that what you just mentioned, refreshing your screen, <laughs> which a lot of people are doing. You're absolutely right. They want to know. They want to know. They want to know. That isn't necessarily making those people happy, though, right? Absolutely. So I do recommend that at a certain point, you know, put the phone down, stop refreshing, pick times to get updates and and stay informed, but also have other more normal feeling things going on in your day so that you don't stay in this state of sort of constant threat and constant vigilance, because that adds to our sort of sense of discomfort and anxiety and all those kinds of things. So that's one piece that I think is important to do. I think it's also the case that there's a lot we can do to kind of rethink how we respond to what uncertainty means. So part of why uncertainty can make us feel really uncomfortable and anxious is because we often, especially if we're prone to anxiety, will assume that if it's uncertain, it means a catastrophe is going to occur. We tend to assume the worst in a lot of those situations. So recognizing that uncertainty doesn't equal catastrophe, it doesn't mean that something bad has happened, it just means we don't know something can help. It can also help to recognize that In many, many cases, we will be able to cope with a wide variety of outcomes. So while I have my personal political allegiances and hopes for how things are going to shake out over the next little bit as we hear about the Senate and the House, I also have a sense that regardless of those outcomes, I kind of know how I will cope. I know how I will manage the changes that will come. And so recognizing that I can handle different outcomes makes the uncertainty less threatening to me. 
it turns it into something that is about not knowing as opposed to something that is a catastrophe that I won't be able to to manage. Right. There's also that kind of almost there's a serenity prayer aspect to this. You have to right. be able to discern the difference between things you can control and things you can't control. Uh, and, and a lot of what people are refreshing their phones about right now is emphatically something they have no control over. That's very true. I also think it's important to recognize that it doesn't mean we have no control, period, over the situation. So while we don't probably have control over the outcomes of the elections, we do have some control over how we respond to that situation, right? So we it's not that we have no control, we just can't control the outcome, but we can control some things tied to how we manage the stress that it brings. We can control some things tied to how we manage, how we relate to others about it. There's a lot of things that we can control even if the outcome itself is not something that we can control. Yeah, I think there's sort of a fine line between, well, I used to, I, had a, I have a friend who back in times of crisis would say to me, just figure out what you'll do, the first things that you'll do if the roof falls in, in this particular situation or that particular situation, which I think is good. That's very different from what if, what if, what if, right? I mean, having a little bit of an action plan as opposed to, overthinking the, you know, 18 different branching possibilities and, and, and kind of paralyzing yourself. Uh, I mean, to me, anyway, those are two slightly different states of mind. They are. And, you know, I often say with my clients who are prone to anxiety that there's a tendency when we're anxious to not finish the stories, right? So if you're a person who has a phobia of spiders, the story stops as the spider lunges towards you. If you're a person who's prone to panic disorder and you have panic attacks, the story stops as your heart is racing madly and you're in the middle of a panic attack. And what I say to people is, okay, so what happens next? So you're in the middle of a panic attack. Well, chances are good. 10 minutes later, you're going to feel a little bit better and it'll have been a miserable experience, but you'll get back up and keep going. With the spider lunging on you, most spiders really are quite harmless and aren't going to do anything. So you'll scream, you'll get it off you then you'll go about your day. So similarly here, to your point, we want to help people see like, oh, this is how I'll put one foot in front of the other, because we tend to stop these stories at the most terrifying moment in them, instead of recognizing that time will move on, and we will be coping one way or another with kind of what's in front of us. Right. And I also think going back to the grasslands of Africa, and then moving forward for thousands and thousands of years, a lot of what we dealt with, we dealt with as groups, as tribes, as uh, as communities. Um, so, yes, I'm worried about this. You're worried about this. And that guy over there is worried about it. And she's worried about it, too. What are we going to th- how do how are we going to think about this? How are we going to get through it? And we've now kind of evolved into this McLuhan-esque species that looks at its phone all the time and looks at its screens all the time and maybe is a little bit less likely to talk directly to other people, but might be encountering people you don't even really know very well on social media. There's a way in which the community aspect of dealing with uncertainty, uh, I I think, seems eroded or at least imperiled. I think that's right. And because we have a way of either disconnecting and isolating, and often when we feel distressed, people do sort of have that desire to retreat into bed, just stare at the phone, all of those kinds of things. And, And that absolutely does make it more challenging to manage that stress. I think we also have developed a tendency to do what we call co-rumination. So the ways that sometimes we connect on social media 
are about, isn't this awful? Isn't this awful? Let me share this awful news story with you. Did you hear about this awful thing? And it, again, adds to that sense of we're in a constant state of threat. And it makes it really hard to navigate times that are objectively like uncertain and stressful and all those things. And so we want to think about definitely connecting with people and not going through stressful periods alone, but also thinking about connecting with people not only around the hard stuff, but planning, like, let's go for a walk together and talk about, you know, a TV show we're into. Let's go for a walk together and do, you know, this other fun way of relating. Let's make cookies together. Whatever it happens to be, to sort of introduce more of that kind of normal stuff that takes a break from the things that feel stressful. Because if we stay completely focused on it all the time, it tends not to be helpful. Now, it's important to distinguish that doesn't mean you say, don't think about that, don't talk about that. But it's about finding balance. It's about connecting on issues that are difficult for a period of time, and then also taking breaks from that and connecting on things that will give you a sense of joy and relief and a little more balance in your life. Right. So uncertainty, when it's expressed as almost a pathology, involves saying, I can't stand not knowing. And, and I think another point of this, and it's there in your writing, too, is, well, yeah, you can actually. You deal with it all the time. I mean, life is very uncertain. I don't know what's going to happen in the rest of the day. I could be in a car accident, you know, or something really great could happen to me. Uh, right. Right. I mean, the notion that life is composed of certainties is also kind of an illusion we should get past. It is 100% because you can do a thought experiment and realize quickly that if we looked for certainty all the time, we would be paralyzed and do nothing. So I, you know, I can't see you right now, but I assume there's a light overhead and you're sitting on a chair right now. Did you check that the spokes on that chair were really secure and it's not going to fall under you? Did you check that that light above you was, you know, really securely attached to the ceiling? Probably not. You just sat down because in order to function, we have to assume that most of the things around us are kind of working, are safe, all of those kinds of things. If we looked for certainty on every possible thing that would go wrong, absolutely nothing would get done. So we have heuristics that guide us very effectively that sort of say, unless I have a good reason to think that something is broken, not working, a thread, a problem, whatever, I'm going to assume it's generally okay. And that works for us large, large, large portion of the time. And if we didn't make that assumption, we would completely fall apart and nothing would get done. I think one of the problems we're going through right now, though, is that a political campaign is almost by its very nature inclined to disrupt those kinds of heuristics uh, in the sense that a political campaign, if you and I are running against one another, I'm going to be running ads saying, Bethany Teachman wants to let drug addicts cross the border. <laughs> and, you know, and you're running ads saying, Colin McEnroe doesn't understand your problems. And if he gets in office, you're going to lose your Social Security and your Medicare. And so you have these kind of competing narratives. Both of them, quite frequently, I mean, most political ads are negative. I mean, that's the most effective sure. kind of political ad sure. that's been tested out. So you have these two essentially very negative narratives, which are mutually exclusive of one another. But talk about something that's going to blow up your normal way of coping with uncertainty. You have competing truth narratives, uh, each of which contains a certain element of doom. I think that's exactly right. And it, you're pointing to a larger issue, which is a really important one, which is that we talk about sort of the difficulties managing stress and uncertainty as though it's an individual level problem. But what you're pointing to is kind of systems that are contributing to it, um, a whole way of discourse, a whole way of relating to one another, uh, particularly in the political sphere, but not exclusively. That's really problematic. And so it tells us that some of the solutions also have to be 
changes at the system level. It also tells us that at the individual level, we should watch for doing a lot of self-blame. So what often happens is people feel stressed and anxious tied to the uncertainty, and then they get mad at themselves for having those feelings, right? They say, this means I'm weak, I should be fine, I shouldn't be this down about it, I should be able to work at 100% of capacity, all those things. And so we need to have a little compassion for ourselves and others that we are in a context, in a situation, in a system that is really fueling a lot of this. It doesn't mean we have to be victims to it. We, again, choose how we react to situations. But recognizing that the source is not our own weakness is really important because it allows us to be better empowered to say, wait a second, I want to respond differently to this crazy situation I've been put in. So reading your work, I was also thinking a little bit about some of the other things that shape our sensibilities and our consciousness. And here in the U.S., I mean, most of us are products to some degree or or another of the Abrahamic religions, which are also very certainty oriented. That's why you have Ten Commandments. Don't do that stuff. If you do that stuff, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. The Old Testament is full of rules, you know, what to do about this, what to do about that, you know. And and if you buy into it all, it offers an awful lot of um, certainty. Calvinism, same deal, although there's some uncertainty woven uh, into early Puritan doctrines. But still, these are religions and thought systems of certainty, whereas some of the, uh, well, things like Taoism, Buddhism, uh, there's an embrace of uncertainty. A koan is effectively, you know, an uncertainty expressed as a contradiction at times. So maybe one of the things we need to do is change our mindset a little bit, not necessarily becoming by becoming Taoist or Buddhist, but as you write, just figuring out some kind of practice uh, that'll help you deal with this particular set of feelings. I think that's right. And again, that goes with sort of the point I was making about like you get to choose how you react to the the challenging situation, even if you can't control the challenging situation. And recognizing that we can choose what uncertainty means to us and how we respond to it's really important. So for some people, it may be that they're doing spiritual practices that help them to manage this. For some individuals, it may be, you know, mindfulness, meditation, those kinds of things. Um, For others, it will be directly looking at the thoughts they're having and saying, wait a second, can I take a different perspective here? Is there another way to kind of understand or evaluate this situation that doesn't automatically assign a really threatening meaning? For others, it will be more about changing their behaviors, about thinking about strongly about like, what are my values in this situation and how do I make my behaviors align effectively with those values? So if I care a lot about, you know, helping others during difficult times, then I might notice that, wow, this is a stressful, difficult time for a lot of people. What can I do that would make it a little easier on others? And of course, by doing that, it's actually one of the best ways to help myself too, because now I'm living closer to my values and helping others actually does huge things for the individual's sort of mental health. So again, if we think about how we want to live and how we want to relate to others, it just is very empowering because then we can decide, yeah, it is uncertain uncertain. That is legitimately hard. Now what? What do I want to do with that information? Because now I have a myriad of choices about what significance I attach to the fact that it's uncertain and what I do with that information. Right. As we're talking, I'm thinking also a little bit about the pollster and poll, at least not pollster, a poll analyst and and data analyst, Nate Silver, who became this kind of almost demigod uh, from about 2008 to 2016 because, you know, he he could not only call the races, he would get all the electoral votes right and stuff like that. And then it turned out he didn't necessarily do that. uh, And his answer was, well, no, if I tell you that there's a 27 percent chance of something happening, 
You know, I mean, yes, the the larger probabilities on the other side, but things that are that happen 27 percent of the time actually do happen uh, and, and that he was really trafficking much more in uncertainty than certainty. But people talk about refreshing the page. I remember election cycles where people were just refreshing Nate's page all the time to see if he'd change those numbers a little tiny bit. And so maybe the last thing we have to say, we've said it a lot of different ways, but you got to let go sometimes. You just got to let go and say, no, there is there is no prophet who can tell you exactly what's going to happen. Right. So clearly acceptance comes into play here in a big way. I will say, though, too, I mean, I love the example you gave for, for Nate Silver's work because, you know, two of my graduate students taught a course at University of Virginia that was on sort of using statistics and probability in daily life. Like, how do you read a newspaper article? How do you look at, you know, 538 at the site and understand what it's telling you? Because we tend to want to think in these dichotomies of like, you know, it's either going to go this way or that way without recognizing that actually lots of things are a lot more complex than that. And how do we kind of live with that complexity and embrace it so that we don't keep getting surprised when things don't fall into neat little boxes? All right. We're going to have to stop there. This is fascinating stuff, though, and we absolutely picked the right person to talk to you about it. Bethany Teachman, professor of psychology and director of clinical training at the University of Virginia. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. So I still crave certainty a little bit. uh, And I thought, what if there was a theory of everything? What if there was like a thermostatic theory of everything? I don't think there is, actually. But uh, our next guest is going to help me explore that question a little bit. In the U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. Well, our technical producer today is, as is the case most days, Cat Pastor, and we're happy about that. Jonathan McPants is the producer of this particular episode with senior producer Lily Tyson keeping watch over us like sheep, uh, like sheep in the, in the meadow. Uh, and so, <laughs> do I sound a little pudgy? Do I sound like I stayed up late last night covering this stuff and, and then later, you know, not covering this stuff? Uh, I'm sorry about that. But I was wondering if there... We all crave a theory. We, we, crave, we crave theories, particularly sort of grand unified theories of things, ways of looking at things that don't necessarily dispel uncertainty, but at least help us understand what's going on here. So one thing I think we can all kind of comfortably say today is that the prevailing narrative leading into Election Day wasn't exactly quite right. There was this sense that it was going to be a pretty typical midterm election, which would punish 
the party in power uh, and that there were other things combining with that to create the potential for a red wave. And, and you've, you've heard nine million times already today the red wave didn't really happen. There was some redness, but there was also some blueness. So where does that come from? How does that happen? And one of the people whose work I've read, and I thought, well, maybe he can help us. Matt Grossman is director of the Institute of, for Public Policy and Social Research and professor of political science at Michigan State University. He hosts the Science of Politics podcast. Matt Grossman, welcome to our conversation. Good afternoon. Good to be with you. So I don't know. First of all, maybe the best place to begin would be to ask you, do you have a kind of working hypothesis about how we got from Monday to Wednesday uh, in this particular week? Well, the polls uh, overall were actually not uh, off uh, by as much as usual, believe it or not, uh, but they were off uh, fairly consistently uh, in a uh, anti-democratic uh, direction. Uh, so that allowed Democrats to do uh, better than expected. But the other thing is that the uh, vibes and news coverage were sort of running against uh, uh, the polling, uh, especially if you compare it to a couple of weeks ago compared to uh, right before the election. The overall pattern uh, is, of course, that the party in the presidency tends to lose seats in the midterm. We know that that's been true for over 100 years. Uh, it is also true internationally and other systems that elect uh, the executive separate than the legislature. So it's it's nothing new and it is a common pattern. But one reason for it, one mechanism is that uh, voters tend to punish policy change more than they reward it. Uh, that is, they're more likely to turn out to vote against something than to vote uh, for something that has already uh, passed. Uh, and swing voters are more likely to move against uh, policy change. And curiously, the biggest policy change of the last two years was actually made by the Supreme Court uh, by the party out of the presidency. So it could really be that the mechanism is somewhat similar uh, this time. It's just that the backlash uh, was as much uh, to the Supreme Court's overruling of Roe v. Wade uh, as it was to anything that happened in the Biden administration. So one of the terms that comes up here is thermostasis. So and so think about your house. It gets cold. You turn up the heat. When it gets hot. You turn down the heat. Uh, you turn, maybe you turn up the AC uh, and the sense that maybe it, there's almost an invisible hand that might do that in politics. Right. That there's a, a way in which there's an equilibrium being sought. I don't know. I, I You understand this better than I do. I'm probably saying it all wrong. Uh, but there's something like that that seems to occur in a situation like this. Uh, that's right. So just for example, uh, immigration policy attitudes moved leftward in response to Donald Trump, but they moved rightward in response uh, to uh, Joe Biden. Uh, when taxes go up, there are more people who want them to go down than when they go down. There are more people who want them to go up. Uh, and it isn't, um, although it seems odd, it's not uh, that hard to to understand that there will be some people who think that things overshot, that they went too far uh, and that they'll no longer Longer want them to go further. So that's the basic um, pattern. Uh, and it did occur here. Abortion attitudes have moved uh, leftward uh, since the Supreme Court uh, decision. Um, but uh, some of the things that Biden was able uh, to accomplish um, were associated with public opinion moves rightward. You know, this is different from what we're talking about right now, but I'd like to get your reaction to it. 
it, it seemed as though one of the other things that became a major narrative in this election was the so-called threat to democracy, uh, the sense that, you know, uh, the, that the election wouldn't work somehow, that it would be in dispute. And obviously the final chapter of this election is not yet written, but we didn't really quite see that so much yesterday. And I'm, I'm wondering whether that's the same kind or maybe a similar kind of response. You get told something is going to happen and then various forces move to, to make sure that that thing doesn't actually happen. Well, there is some evidence that, for example, uh, when voting rights are restricted, more people turn out uh, to, mm -hmm. to vote in response to that. Uh, so there there might be uh, some evidence uh, consistent uh, with that. I, I would say the good news is that uh, most candidates uh, who are in races that have been called uh, have conceded, um, have not um, tried to, to challenge results so far. Um, so we'll take the, the positive uh, from uh, this morning where we can get it. So if we if if we think about things the way that you've been suggesting then first of all we should say the results of this election are far from done and we're heading towards a runoff in Georgia and so uh, you tweeted today, I think, that, <laughs> that, that if Trump were to announce um, a campaign for re-election in between now and that runoff, he once again might be kind of altering that angle of repose that we've slid into, right? He starts to change the dynamics a different way. Uh, yes, uh, certainly uh, the uh, runoff elections last time where Democrats uh, improved on their election day uh, November uh, margins uh, to take control of the the Senate uh, with those two elections were were certainly affected uh, by Trump being the center of the attention uh, for uh, those those couple months and and might be again uh, for the runoff that we're uh, likely to have in uh, December. Uh, but I, I guess I resist a little bit that this election uh, was sort of in that same mold, um, given that. Uh, you know, there was literally zero Republicans who mentioned Trump positively in their ads after the primary, and he was only uh, mentioned negatively in about 5% of Democratic ads in October and November. So uh, this election really wasn't that much about uh, Trump um, compared to, to previous uh, elections. Uh, and uh, so I don't know um, that we can sort of uh, credit or fault him uh, with the with the victories yesterday. Although maybe we should back up and say one of the maybe one of the reasons that he wasn't being mentioned in ads and the, one of the reasons that more Republicans identified themselves with the party than with Trump was because the opposite had appeared to be true for a while. I mean, in other words, you could look at the thing that you're describing as a correction for stuff that that built up over the preceding four years. Uh, that, that's right. That's certainly why Republicans might have uh, not wanted to to put him uh, front and center. Um, but it's it's curious that uh, Democrats also uh, seem to to learn from last year's elections in Virginia uh, that maybe putting Trump at the center of everything wasn't the the only path forward. So you know they only put him in one of uh, every twenty ads, whereas uh, Biden was in about half of uh, Republican ads. So they were really trying to make this a referendum uh, on Biden. Although if you look then at some of the races, and, and we don't even keep, have to keep saying Trump, but if you look at Georgia, there's a real difference between Brian Kemp and Herschel Walker. I mean, there's a lot of different differences, a lot of differences. But Kemp 
clearly has hived himself off from whatever we would call that movement in a way that Walker hasn't. Uh, you look at somebody like, like Dr. Oz uh, in Pennsylvania, who fared very, very poorly in what was projected to be a much closer race. Um, and you do, it does seem like, maybe it's not a rejection of Trump, but it's a rejection of something, some way that puts out of balance the kind of equilibrium that we're talking about. Well, there does seem to still be a candidate quality effect. Um, and by that, we just mean that candidates uh, that have previously held elected office uh, do better. Uh, and uh, we did see uh, people split their tickets um, in uh, important swing states. Uh, we're seeing uh, some of that uh, in in several states, in Pennsylvania, in Georgia, in Arizona, uh, in Ohio. So uh, there still are voters who make distinctions between the candidates. And when they make distinctions, it tends to uh, be in favor of the candidates uh, with with more political experience. So another thing that has been suggested by uh, by political theorists is that we're moving more and more towards um, a politics of identification as opposed to a politics of policy that when I mean, this has been, you know, turning up in research for a really, really long time. You know, if you <laughs> if you gather a bunch of people together who identify as, say, Democrats and you tell them that policy X, a policy about, I don't know, Lyme disease uh, is a Republican policy, they're not they're going to reject it. Uh, if you tell them it's a Democratic policy, they're going to embrace it. There's a way in which our identification with tribe is beginning to or, or maybe for a long time has exceeded our embrace of specific policies associated with that tribe. I don't know. How do you see that these days? I know on your podcast, uh, you've talked uh, uh, quite a bit about the politics of belief. Uh, yes. So uh, it is certainly true that our partisan identifications are, are very strong and that uh, often people will actually change their issue attitudes to match their partisanship uh, rather than uh, vice versa. Um, but I don't want to overstate it. Uh, there is also a long-term pattern where people are um, growing uh, com more confident that their views are better reflected by one party or the other and have aligned with that party. Uh, and so some of the most striking examples that you see are actually on issues that are new or that their voters might not know any much about, um, where they're very susceptible to those kinds of partisan framing uh, effects that, that you're talking about. So yes, uh, people tend to follow their uh, party, but over the long term, the big change is that people have actually found the party that uh, matches their overall views. Right. That might have happened, for example, we're, cut, we're effectively out of time here, but it might have happened during the pandemic, right? I don't want to, want to wear a mask. Which party hates masks? Um, it may be stuff like that, right? Uh, that's right. And actually, at the beginning of the pandemic, there were psychologists saying, well, conservatives have a frame of mind that should be uh, more wary of diseases, more wary of foreign threats. And all of that, uh, if it was there, was overridden by just the basic partisanship of whether uh, Donald Trump was saying uh, that we should be afraid of it or not, uh, and uh, it, vice versa for the Democrats. All right. We have to stop there. Matt Grossman is director of the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research and professor of political science at Michigan State University. He hosts the Science of Politics podcast.